Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Carrie and for um, all the prayer and, and work and effort uh, she has put into this passage and for illuminating it to her, Lord. Um, and we just pray that you would help us settle our hearts. Um, I pray for anyone still on the road, Lord, as it looks like this fog is getting worse and worse. Protect them. Bring them here safely. Um, and, uh, uh, Father, we just uh, love your word. We love to sit in it. And we ask once again that you would um, just, um, uh, just you know, reveal uh, what it is that you want us to hear um, what it is you want us to learn, uh, what it is you want us to see, uh, not only um, about ourselves, but about others and the way that uh, we see the world. Um, it, it is a crazy time, Lord, and uh, just help ground us today in your word and help um, this passage specifically to point us to Jesus, uh, the one who was persecuted, uh, was innocent, and was put to death. Um, so thank you for um, uh, his death and resurrection for us and uh, for the hope he gives us. And the fact that this passage does point us to um, that hope that we have. So um, be with Carrie now. In Jesus' name, amen. Right here. All right. Can you hear me? I speak pretty loudly, so let me know if. If I start to trail off at all. All right. So I'm going to start with asking you, do you remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Who used to watch that? Okay, here we go. So imagine with me for a moment that there is a biblical version of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It might go something like this. Now, this is a story all about how David's life got flip turned upside down. In West Bethlehem, born and raised, in the pastures where he spent most of his days, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool. He even got to shoot Goliath, that fool. (laughs) Then a guy named Saul, who was up to no good, started making trouble in his neighborhood. (laughs) Spears thrown at him, and he got scared. You're moving to the caves. This is beyond repair. (laughs) And this, ladies, is where we start chapter 20 today. We learn how David's life, (laughs) we learn how David's life gets flip turned upside down. Everything comes to a head in this chapter. David must decide if it is safe for him to stay in Saul's service or leave, but he wants to consult with Jonathan first. So if you remember from last week, Saul is in Naoth having his 24 hour prophetic marathon. This gave David time to escape, and he arrives in Gibeah at Jonathan's home. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Saul, the king, is after David. Why would you go to his son's home? (laughs) Well, remember, Jonathan had declared a covenant before God with David in chapter 18. This was a covenant in which God was witness to and guardian of its promises. This is why in an unsafe time, David knew he could go to Jonathan and find safe haven. David expects Jonathan to act with hesed towards him. Let's dive into the word hesed for just a minute. English versions vary in translating this word. Some say it translates as deal kindly. Others say show faithful love. Traditionally and frequently, it is mercy or steadfast love 
or loving kindness. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, Hesed carries these ideas. It is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. In our passage, then, David appeals to Jonathan to treat him with devoted love. He has reason to believe Jonathan will do so because Jonathan has so promised in the covenant of Yahweh. Hence, the covenant gives him reason to look for and depend upon Hesed, devoted love. David knew he could depend on Jonathan in this time of trouble. So David goes to Jonathan and asks him, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, at this point, Saul has taken multiple attempts on David's life. So we may think, why does David still need to determine if Saul's intentions towards him are hostile? He threw a spear at him. I think his intentions are pretty clear. However, it is important to note here that David is not asking if Saul's intentions are hostile, but rather why Saul continues after him. David wanted to understand if he had wronged Saul in some way or failed him in some duty. It also appears that perhaps David wanted to make Saul's intentions clear to Jonathan, who was still incredibly naive regarding the whole matter. Jonathan, it seems, remains unconvinced that there is any danger for David. Jonathan even says in verse 2, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. David answers in verse 3 saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So Jonathan agrees to help David uncover Saul's motives. But at this point, he is not taking sides yet. Jonathan realizes, however, that in the near future, that is exactly what he will need to do. And this is where the two friends come up with a plan. The next day would be the new moon, which was a rest day each month for which special sacrifices were prescribed. Saul had a three-day festival where members of the royal court were expected to attend. So they decide that David should deliberately not attend. If Saul accepts his absence, it will show that Saul is still happy with David. If, however, Saul gets angry, then the threat to David will be confirmed. The two men then go out into a field to discuss the plan in more detail. Perhaps they went out to the field so as not to be overheard. But here, Jonathan asked David to make a covenant with him. Jonathan commits to helping David and to protecting him. He asked David to commit to him with hesed or kindness. So picking up in verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, 
May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So let's just stop for a moment and fully understand what Jonathan is doing here. This covenant is very unusual because who does this? Who hands over your position to your rival and promise to protect him? Especially when your position is that of a crown prince. If Jonathan were at all normal, he would welcome David's death. He would be happy to see this threat disposed of. Del Ralph Davis says, Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face of all political sense. However, covenant conquers culture here. Jonathan is making himself or himself lesser so that David can be greater. He is honoring God's chosen one. Jonathan is also asking David to spare his life as well as his family when David rises to power. This would have perhaps been laughable in this day and age. It was customary when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the old would be destroyed. Everybody in this time period knew it, believed it, and practiced this. In verse 17, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This was a bold move for both of them. This covenant is a testament of their loyalty to one another. After they make the covenant with each other, the two friends then come up with a secret plan to relay Saul's intentions. So in verse 18, then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So the new moon feast came and the king sat down to eat and Saul sees that David's place is empty. Saul thinks nothing of it and assumes David must be ceremonially unclean because if you were ceremonially unclean, that disqualified you from taking part in any religious festival at that time. But on the second day, David is absent again. And this time his absence raises questions. Saul asks Jonathan why David is missing from the feast. And Jonathan gives the answer that the two friends had decided upon, that David took leave to attend a family sacrifice. The text tells us that Saul's anger flares up, not just at David, but at Jonathan as well. Saul first verbally attacks Jonathan and tells him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Saul has to be thinking, you idiot. Don't you see he is a threat to you and your reign? Saul knows that as long as David lives, Jonathan will not reign. Saul then asks Jonathan to bring David to him so that he can put him to death. Saul's motives are now crystal clear. This is a key moment in the narrative. Before, Jonathan had been able to mediate between his father and David. 
but at this point, mediation is no longer possible. This is the point where Jonathan must choose his loyalty to his father or to David. He responds, why should he be put to death? What has he done? With these questions, Jonathan has sided with David. This provokes Saul and he physically attacks Jonathan as well, hurling his spear at him to strike him. Saul's anger and envy and jealousy have now spiraled so much that now he wants to kill his own son. It is now Jonathan's turn to experience fierce anger, not because his father has just tried to kill him, but rather because Saul has treated David so shamefully as to accuse him of treason. The tension becomes unbearable for Jonathan, so he leaves the feast and all the guests who had witnessed the scene. It is important to note here that up until this point, Saul's attempts to destroy David had mostly been underhand and secret. But now, at this dinner, the death sentence had been declared in front of the entire royal court, including any of the army leaders. David was now officially a fugitive, a declared enemy of the state. So now fast forward to the morning. As promised, picking up in verse 35, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face or fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with each other, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. At this point, David knows he must leave. Saul was not going to allow him to be part of the court again. He couldn't even be part of the army as David's military successes provoked jealousy in Saul beyond bearing. It is interesting to point out here that with David's success and popularity, he could have opted to stage a coup and overtake Saul. This, however, never came into question. David knew that Saul had been anointed and appointed by God, and he would remain king until God removed him from office. David honored this. This left him with no other choice but to flee the country. As one commentator stated, Any alternative would put other people in danger or undermine Saul's position, and David had no desire to do either of those things. So the two men part weeping. They don't know if they will ever meet again. The chapter ends with Jonathan saying to David, go in peace. There is peace between Jonathan and David, but it has come at the price of hostility between Jonathan and Saul. So what is this chapter teaching us? I believe there are three major points here. The first one, we have a choice to make. Jonathan had to choose his father or David, his own kingdom or God's kingdom. 
It seems Jonathan had no ambition to be the king, and he certainly felt no jealousy when he came to understand that David had been called to be the next king. Jonathan's desire was to serve God and his country in the best way that he could. He was happy to humble himself and take the role of a servant. In contrast, Saul is determined to cling to power and control. He becomes consumed with envy and anger to the point where he is willing to kill his own son. Saul is choosing to prioritize his kingdom over God's kingdom. We too must choose. Do we want to build our own little kingdoms or do we want to submit to the maker of heaven and earth and build his kingdom? Do we want Jesus or the things of this world? Tim Keller says, it is impossible to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. You either bow down and wonder or go away offended. Keller also says, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. This is the wonder. He stayed on the cross for us. He came into this world and gave up his life to save ours. When we don't remember this sacrifice, it's easy for us to prioritize our kingdoms over his. But what we learn from Jonathan is that we are to give up our control and our little kingdoms. We are to claim David's descendant, Jesus, as our Christ, as our king. We are to give up control to him. We are to allow him to become greater, and we must become less. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 and 35, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So ladies, what do we choose today? We have a choice to pick up our cross, to follow him, to set our eyes upon Jesus, or we can run, we can hide, we can turn our backs and choose to follow something else. Ultimately, there is a choice you and I must make. There can be no compromise. There is only one that deserves the position of ruler, and God has already chosen who that is, Jesus. All right, lesson two. Find comfort in God's promises. Chapter 20 ends with Jonathan telling David to go in peace. Jonathan is saying that David can go because there is peace between the two of them. There is peace because they swore an oath to each other. They have made a second covenant promising to provide equal protection to each other. David protected in the short term. Jonathan and his family protected in the long term. We also have peace promised to us through Jesus. How can God do this? Jesus filled the conditions of the law, the terms of the covenant, so that we can be loved unconditionally. This leaves the blessing for us. In his grace, God offers us peace with himself through Christ. Dale Ralph Davis says, you seek Hesed and simply find yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. Don't forget what David has taught you. In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. He is the only recourse in uncertainty. 
Do we take comfort in God's promises to us? Do we rest in his faithfulness? I've been reminded of this lately in my own life as I struggle with anxiety that is linked to my cancer experience. In 2019, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and over that next year, I went through surgery, chemo, and radiation. Fast forward to now, and I'm doing fine physically, but mentally, some days are a real struggle. Do I feel another lump? Why does my stomach hurt? Has the cancer moved there? Will my cancer come back? Ultimately, I don't know the answer to these questions, and I don't like that, as it feels very out of control. And while I don't know if my cancer will come back one day, I'm learning to rest in the promise that God is with me. And even if it does come back, he will see me through just as he has before. One song that I love and that has been reminding me of these truths is Promises by Maverick City Music. So I'm going to read the lyrics to you. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant and of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you said. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faithfulness to me. From the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. God, from age to age, though the earth may pass away, your word remains the same. Your history can prove there's nothing you can't do. You're faithful and true. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faithfulness to me. From the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. He'll never let me down. In the middle of the storm, in the middle of my trial, I'll still bless you. When I'm in the middle of the road and I don't know which way to go, I'll still bless you. I've got a reason to bless you. You've been faithful. You've been faithful. You've been so good to me. You've been so good. (laughs) Don't those words just provide such great comfort? And that was the short version of the song, I should say. If you go online and listen to it, it's like nine minutes long, but I really encourage you to listen to it. It's awesome. But those words have been so helpful to me over the past six months or so. David knew he could turn to Jonathan in this time of fear, in the middle of the road when he didn't know which way to go. We have that promise too. We can turn to God in the middle of our roads when we don't know where to go. He is faithful. He is steadfast. He is good. Lesson three, friendship. In this chapter, we learn much about Jonathan's character. He is unselfish, loving, brave, loyal, committed, and wise. He is a true friend to David. What can we learn from their friendship? And in general, what is a friend? Here are some quotes I found on friendship. C.S. Lewis says, friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Helen Keller says, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. And this one may be my favorite. There is nothing better than a friend unless it is a friend with chocolate. (laughs) True friends are rare. Friendship requires a foundation that can't be created, but only discovered. 
at some point, Jonathan discovers that David is God's anointed one. And they both discover that they cherish a relationship with the Lord, and it creates a strong bond between them. Aristotle says, what is a friend? A single soul dwelling in two bodies. And our text tells us today that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. Friends are often what we need them to be in the moment. Jonathan is a friend to David in this chapter in that David could find refuge in him. Henry Nguyen says in his book, Out of Solitude, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. Can you imagine having a friend like Jonathan? Someone so loyal and steadfast, someone that loves you so much that they put you first. They give up that they give up their kingdom for you. Can you imagine? The good news is that we do have a friend like this. We do have someone that has laid down his life for us, who loves us beyond measure, who delights in us, whose steadfast love will never fail, King Jesus. And because of this, we are to extend this friendship and love to each other. Consider John 15, 12 through 15. My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. One of the most powerful ways this love and friendship has been displayed to me was when my mom died of cancer in 2016. The week before she died, my husband's kids and I traveled to Georgia to spend time with her. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to leave and come back to Pennsylvania. I had to kiss my mother goodbye and walk out the door knowing I would never see her again on this earth. The last words she said to me, she grabbed my hand and she said, Tell your church friends I said thank you. And at the time, I didn't think much of this and honestly thought, well, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. (laughs) But fast forward to her death and her funeral, and now five years later, and wow, I get it, Mom. I understand. We are a family, the body of Christ. We are one. When one of us grieves, we all grieve. We weep with those who weep. We pick people up and carry them through the hard parts of this life. She knew you guys were going to take care of me. She knew you guys would see me through this difficult time in my life. I really think that gave her peace to know that I would be cared for. She could go in peace, knowing that as Jesus has promised to love us, we promise to love and care for each other. What a friend we have in Jesus and in the body of Christ. So those are the three lessons from this chapter. We have a choice to make, find comfort in God's promises and friendship. I'm going to just briefly touch on chapter 21, because I spent so much time on chapter 20. But verse 10 pretty much sums up the next few chapters. David rose up and fled on that day from before Saul. David's first stop is Nob and to the priest Ahimelech. 
David needs food and weapons and so comes up with a cover story. He tells Ahimelech that he is on highly, a highly sensitive government assignment, which is why he's traveling alone. He also asks for a weapon as his mission was so urgent that he left without his sword or weapons. Ahimelech provides David with bread and also with Goliath's sword. Why was David not truthful with Ahimelech? Why did he come up with this cover story? Perhaps he was trying to protect Ahimelech, creating this story so as Ahimelech would not be implicated in aiding an enemy of the crown. Ahimelech could rightly claim that he knew nothing if David told him nothing. The text does not claim whether this was right or wrong. It just simply reports the information. The bigger question here is, what is God doing in this text? We see that in the confusion and danger and fear, God is providing David with a basic need, food. He's receiving his daily bread. Dale Ralph Davis says, Even when everything is scraped down to the bone, I receive my daily bread, not because I am godly, but because Yahweh is gracious. This provision, yet small, assures us that God is gracious. He does provide. Next, David flees to Achish, the king of Gath. If you remember, Gath is Goliath's hometown. Can you believe that David thought this was a good idea to fly to, go, to flee to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword and that he hoped to find sanctuary there? Possibly David was thinking that Akish would welcome his rival's top military lieutenant. Whatever he thought, this clearly wasn't a great idea, and therefore it shows just how desperate David was. Akish's advisors tell the king, here is the legendary David, the one who has slain his ten thousands. Most of them, by the way, O king, were Philistines. David had every reason at this point to be afraid. He was in their hands, which leads us to believe he was under arrest and in their custody. David quickly decides to act as if he is insane. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Akish decides he doesn't need another crazy person hanging around and permits David to go. I guess he had enough crazy people already in his court. I don't know. We may think, phew, David was so lucky to get out of that one. But how does David respond? Well, we will see how he responds next week as Tracy Idy walks us through two psalms that David wrote after this fiasco in Gath, Psalms 34 and 56. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today. Would we be so bold as to choose you today and every day? Would we seek to build your kingdom and not our own? Would we be your humble servants as Jonathan was? Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can be loved unconditionally because Jesus took the covenant curse for us. What a friend we have in Jesus indeed. May we shine your light in our friendships giving glory to you through all that we do, say, and think. Thank you for our friends, Lord. Thank you for the ways they build us up and remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs>